Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, morning, everybody. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, I do have one, uh, one note just to make about the bulletin. Mark, man, I appreciate your prayer and your comments. Uh, it does say Pastor Dan Nichols, uh, and the Lord has pressed pause on that season of our life. It's not an appropriate title, though they do say, uh, once a pastor, always a pastor, and I, I feel that impulse, it, it runs through me, and so you don't have to call me that. I'm not a pastor here or anywhere else, um, but if you retain that, that's okay too. I can handle that. Uh, if you were a part of the Lakewood family, say circa 2004 to 2008, and particularly if you were around on Wednesday nights, you might recall a certain lad. Obnoxiously tall, aggressively thin, with a loud voice and even louder clothing, shaggy hair, a guy who had a big heart but sometimes came off as a know-it-all. If you were around in those days, first, I don't want to be presumptive. If there's something I need to apologize for, uh, please, we can talk afterwards. You're welcome to come up. Um, Otherwise, it's good to see you all again. Uh, it, it probably doesn't take too much squinting to, to see that boy standing in front of you. I put on you know, a little bit of weight, but uh, probably not enough. Um, got a haircut, bought some clothes. Hopefully I'm a little quieter. Uh, my wife would say contrary. Uh, I did. I married the uh, most incredible woman that's ever attended uh, this church. We've been gone for something like uh, 14 years. Um, we had three little hooligans along the way, and we are now back living in the Brainerd Lakes area. And there's a lot of story there, a lot of story uh, in those 14 years, uh, heights of joy and deep, deep uh, sorrows. But I can say that um, I'm ha happy to be back in this room preaching the word. This is the first time for me behind uh, this pulpit, and I am uh, thankful for it. A great deal of my spiritual formation happened as a teenager here because my parents and my brothers and I were able to find a home here, a place to be loved and discipled. And there are several people in this room who are a part of that. I just want to say thank you. Now, as a way of getting acquainted or maybe reacquainted with some of you, I want to begin by sharing something about me, something that we can kind of connect over. Uh, it's that I don't do well with surprises. Some people love them, and it's not that I don't like them necessarily, it's that I don't do well with them. I don't react the right way to surprises. Now, there's good ones, right? And then there's bad ones, like when you're at the pizza joint with your brother and your spouse, and they conspire to loosen the cap on the Parmesan cheese. And the next thing you know, your plate is one-third pizza and two-thirds cheese. And they laugh at you as you pout over your ruined meal, and then you find out later that it's all on video. <laughs> then there's good surprises. Uh, nowadays, it's popular to see video posts and reels and so on of moms and dads reacting to like a gender reveal or finding out that they're pregnant. You'll see the dad all excited, jumping up and down, going crazy, and it's, it's heartwarming. And I can recall all three times that my wife shared the news that we were pregnant, and I know that I did not respond this way. Not because I wasn't excited, I was, but simply because I don't react well to surprises. It's something I need to work on. But I wonder if you know this, the God we worship, the one we hear from on Sunday and surrender our lives to, he is a God of surprises. 
Maybe you've been surprised by him. Maybe you live with eyes open to all the ways that God brings wonder, how he astonishes us. And if you don't, might I suggest that you hit refresh on your time in the scriptures, refresh on your spiritual life, because this is how God works. Now, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, and you can turn there if you wish, it's one of those texts in Scripture that should surprise us. From beginning to end, everything about it is astonishing. The history recorded here is about Gentile pagans utilizing unlawful practices in order to find and worship a young child whom they claim to be the long-awaited king of the Jews. It's a provocative narrative, and the whole of it causes us to ask this question. Who is this king, and what is his rule like? And so my aim this morning is for us to marvel at the surprising answers and to stand in awe of King Jesus. So on that note, let's listen in on what's happening in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please pray with me as we prepare to hear the word. Father, in your kindness, you have chosen to speak. You are not distant, but you have drawn near through your Son. And by the Spirit, you have communicated to us that which you desire for us to know. And so, um, in light of that, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so our question, who is this king? For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to work through the passage. My aim is for you to see four surprising facets of this king's rule. Surprising in that this king's reign and rule are unique to himself. Different from King Herod's and unlike any who would come before or after. So we're going to start in the first two verses. The first facet of this king's rule is that it extends to the nations. 
His borders are manifest, not bound by tribe or tongue or territory. His reign encompasses the nations, meaning that he is calling worshipers from every direction, even, as we see here, Gentile unbelievers from the east. See, these characters here, the Magi, um, are themselves, quite literally, out of place. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard the song at some point, We Three Kings. And uh, just a spoiler alert here, we, we don't know how many of these men were actually there. Um, but what we do know is that they weren't kings and that there was likely many more than three of them. Enough so that verse 3 says that the whole city of Jerusalem is aware of their presence. The fact that these men followed a unique star a great distance tells us that they were likely practitioners of astrology, a method of determining meaning and information from the heavens. Uh, Kings would often collect astrologers to have as their royal counselors to help them divine the will of pagan deities. Uh, One example is in the book uh, of Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar, he has astrologers in his council. And astrology was a plague throughout the ancient world and condemned in the scriptures. And yet, it is exactly how God chooses to call these men of renown near to honor the birth of his son. Astrology. Men of renown, unbelieving Eastern nations. Surprised? We shouldn't be. In fact, there's nothing new at all about this. Listen to some of the Old Testament context. You're welcome. I'm going to mention a few verses. You're welcome to jot them down if you want to look back on them later this week. So it's just a couple of passages here. We'll start with the foundational promise made to the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham that all who would bless him and his family, like these astrologers bless this child, they would in turn be blessed, indicating that God has always had his eye on the Gentile nation, seeking to draw them in. And it doesn't take long for that promise to begin to work itself out. In Genesis 14, Abraham rescues the people of Sodom, as well as his nephew Lot. And in return, the king of Sodom offers essentially everything that belongs to his kingdom. Later on in 1 Kings 8, there's recorded this prayer by Solomon upon the returning of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. And this is what he says, praying to the Lord, When a foreigner, O God, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And just two two chapters later in 1 Kings, there's this recorded event of Queen Sheba coming from a distance to visit Solomon. She hears his wisdom, sees his kingdom in all its glory, and she blesses him. She gives things to him, and he in turn blesses her. Hosea 1.10 says that the number of the children of Israel, they will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and it cannot be numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, like the far east where a multitude of false gods were worshipped, 
in that place, they shall be called children of the living God. All of which is to say that when a group of non-Jewish men of importance travel a far distance to pay homage to the one long-awaited king of Israel, we shouldn't be surprised. This has always been God's plan. Now, while Matthew, the gospel writer, he's aware of all those passages that anticipate the Gentile nations coming to the Messiah King. In recording this event, he clearly has in mind Isaiah 60. So here's just a couple of quotations from Isaiah 61 to 6, and you can listen in. You'll hear the clues that connect themselves to Matthew 2. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The passage even says that the nations shall bring gold and frankincense, two of the three gifts listed in our passage, and they shall bring good news, praises of the Lord. Because this Jesus is king, and his kingdom It is without borders. And he calls faithful followers from every nation and language, even the most surprising of characters from the most surprising of places. And I would understand if these men fall into your category of unlikely worshiper. I mean, how odd this is. Who would have guessed something like this? But I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that they are no further from Jesus than you were. It is no more surprising that they would be called to kneel before King Jesus than that you would be. That no matter what kind of home you grew up in, or how much you read your Bible, or if you did all of the right things, you were as far from God as these men. Which also means that the person in your life who seems so far from Jesus Maybe it's an angry spouse or an indifferent parent or a wayward child or that guy at work who cusses too much or that Packers fan next door. They are no more out of reach of Jesus Christ than you were. It might even be you. Seemingly far away from Jesus. You're sitting here thinking that all of this is silly. Praying and singing songs to an invisible God listening to some windbag talk for 30 minutes. If this is you, know that you are loved, you are pursued, and you are called by Jesus Christ, and you are no further from him than the rest of us. He calls even you. He commands you. He persuades you of his worth in the worthwhile pursuit of his glory. Now, the second facet of the king's rule, this king's rule, is that it is gentle, like that of a shepherd with his sheep. Herod, upon hearing from the Magi that there is to be born a king to Israel, asks his Jewish counselors, where will this Messiah come from? 
Where will he be born? And they respond by quoting Micah 5.2. So here's a selection from the context of that passage. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be my ruler in Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great at the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So that this king would come from a small town, one that was barely on the radar, not even counted as a clan of Judah. And what's it say about him? He will shepherd his flock meaning that he will, he will lead them. He will provide for his people. Think of Psalm 23. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And because he shepherds us, we shall dwell secure, even as we wander about in a dark and unforgiving world. I can remember walking in the woods uh, as a young boy during hunting season. And, and you know that moment when you realize you're totally lost, and there's nobody around. It's terrifying. I remember that moment for a brief second. And then I see my dad, you know, blaze orange hat, blaze orange jacket, and immediately I felt safe. I felt secure because I knew that I was. Everything was okay. And it is okay because it says he shall be our peace. He has made Peace. He has become peace for us. The Lord against whom you and I stood at odds with, he's become our peace. Made us one with him and done what is necessary to make us children in his family, citizens in his kingdom by dying on a cross and being raised to life again for all who would trust in him. Folks, unlike Herod, who seeks to accomplish his purposes by force at the expense of his people, this king's rule is gentle. He is like a shepherd who cares tenderly for his sheep, who longs for their good, who leads them to still water and green pastures. And I realize that your perception of Jesus may not be like this. Experiences and relationships, they contain the power to shape and affect the way you see God. So depending on what's happened to you, maybe what home life was like, or any number of circumstances that you have had to walk through, you may see God as, as an angry father, waiting for his kids to screw up so that he can punish them. You may see him as distant. You may see Jesus as ambivalent to your struggles and your temptations and your shortcomings, to your trials and suffering. You might not feel secure with whatever is your functional image of God. You might not feel that peace. And so what I would offer you is the power and the authority of the Scripture's description of who God actually is, what he's like. And I would encourage you to submit yourself to them. That the Spirit would direct you towards a deeper understanding of this king's gentle rule. The third truth revealed 
about this king is that his purposes will not be thwarted. This is verses 7 to 8, and then in verse 12. Um, let's take a moment just to look at how the different parties react to the news of this king. Because the Magi get it. They don't even have the scriptures. They might have a little bit of knowledge of Israel's God, but they're the ones who get it. They long to visit him and draw near. But there's three other groups worth noting. The first is Herod. Herod fears the coming of another king. And as next week's passage indicates, he responds in vengeance. To Herod, this king is a threat that needs to be dealt with. And it's a threat because there is already a king of the Jews. And that's Herod. See, Herod, while he did not faithfully observe the law, most certainly would have had some Israelite lineage. And as the governor in the ruling dynasty prior to Roman control, um, he had supported Rome in its siege of Jerusalem approximately 40 years before the birth of Christ. And Rome was successful in that siege and gaining control. And thus, because of his help, Rome let Herod keep his position, and they even granted him the title King of the Jews. So he sees Jesus as a threat, another king of the Jews. And immediately gets to work on a plan that will make sure that Herod remains in power. He sends the wise men to Bethlehem saying, make sure to find this king and report back to me so that I may worship him too. And as we can see, it's, it's all a trick. Verse 16 shows us that the whole time Herod was so intent on ending Jesus' life that he has all children two years younger and younger in Bethlehem. And not just in Bethlehem, but for good measure, the greater region, he has them killed. Herod is opposed to this other king of the Jews. Now, at the risk, um, at the risk of offending any of you beautiful people, I want to suggest something. I want to suggest that the posture of your heart was at one point, and still might be, much closer to Herod's than you're comfortable admitting. Now, reading this text and beyond, it, none of us could imagine doing the things that Herod does. The actions themselves are unimaginable. But isn't Herod doing what the sin-bent heart does? He is king over his domain, and he's protecting it. See, the heart, your heart, is naturally bent towards making yourself king. You want to rule. You want control. And you don't want to subject yourself to another. And for those of you who, who know Jesus and have been made new through his resurrection, Jesus is working by the Spirit to overcome that and to rule over you. But you are, even now, after 30, 40, 50 years of following him, you are still inclined to place yourself back on the throne that belongs to King Jesus. Now the second response to the news of the Messiah's birth is even more surprising than Herod's. And that's how the Jews in Jerusalem respond. Verse 3 says that all of Jerusalem is troubled. And there's a few ways to interpret the word, but, but no matter what exactly it's getting at, is negative. People in Jerusalem are sensing inward turmoil. They are disturbed and confused. 
how far away they are from where they should be, thankfully celebrating the Messiah King that they have long anticipated. But it's the last response that gets us, the most surprising of them all, and it's that of Herod's counselors. These were Jewish men who had a strong grasp of the scriptures. It is not surprising that they knew where Jesus, where the Messiah would be born. They're supposed to know that. What's surprising is their lack of response to it. In the text, we see a strong contrast between the Magi and Herod's Jewish counselors, who would have been uh, scribes and Pharisees and well-versed in the scriptures. See, the Magi sacrificed much to travel a great distance simply to pay Jesus' honor. But the counselors, they don't roll up their tunics to travel the five miles to Bethlehem to see. Talk about having head knowledge that has no impact on your life. I think it's worth taking a moment to ponder here our own reception to King Jesus. To think uh, of the attitude of our hearts towards him. Are you secretly like Herod? Intent on retaining authority and maintaining rule? Do you fear and despise any who would threaten that rule? Are you like Israel? Disturbed in turmoil, confused in leaning away from this king. Are you like Herod's Jewish counselors who knew the scriptures and knew all the right answers about the Messiah but reacted with indifference? Or are you like the Magi who longed for him, who sought him out, who drew near to this king in a cradle? Well, no matter how you answer that question or where you're at, one thing can be certain. King Jesus' purposes will not be thwarted. The wise men leave Herod with every intention of coming back. Herod's tricked them. But God warns them in a dream and sends them back home by a different way because no man, no matter how powerful, no matter how influential, no matter how intelligent or tricky, no man can circumvent the plans of God. He will not be overcome by the hostile or avoided by the fearful, or estranged from the indifferent. No matter what threatens his rule, Jesus' purposes will still be accomplished. He will not be thwarted by seemingly good or bad political figures, or cultural movements, or men and women in power, or even, if the Vikings happen to lose this afternoon, even then God works out as well. But more personally, his purposes for you will not be thwarted. Christian, Jesus will have his way with you. Meaning that all the promises he has made, the incredible future he has prepared, the work he's presently doing, these will not be overcome by your sin or by the temptations you encounter. He will have his way with you. Which leads us to the last surprising facet of this king's rule. What is true of this king? It's that his honor is your joy. This is verses 9 to 11. Jesus is, is due honor and he will receive it. He will receive it, but from a happy people. He is the glorious king who is worthy of joyful worship. L- listen to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced 
exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So what, what are these magi doing? Well, in some manner, they are acknowledging his rule. They, they fall down before him like one ought to fall down before a king. Now, to conclude that these, are now, these men are now followers of Jesus moves beyond the text. We can't be sure about something like that. But what we do is we, is we see them responding to a king as one ought. They verbally honor him. They say it and possibly even sing it, as I can imagine. And they offer him what they have. They offer him gifts that they've held on to for their entire trip. Gifts that they would have had to protect from thieves. Gifts that they thought of bringing even before they left home. Precious gifts of meaning and value. They offer him what they have and they do these things with great joy. See, at the heart of the Christian life is not a formula to follow or rules to obey. It's the joyful response of worship. It's my impression that one of the gravest mistakes we make is to conclude that faithfully following Jesus Christ and rendering worship and gifts and service unto him is simply our duty. And that is a good word, duty. In fact, if, if you're my age or younger, you probably need to make it a more ordinary part of your vocabulary. Get up early, work hard, be responsible, care for the people around you. You do have a duty. But it's my prayer that the Lord would take you through the duty of drawing near to him into seasons of deep joy oriented around prayer and worship and gathering with God's people and and other spiritual disciplines. Because make no mistake, Jesus will receive his due honor. All opposed to him will be trampled by him, will fear him, will bow down before him. Everyone. But for those who know him, who belong to him, who bow before him, his honor is their joy. Orienting your life around King Jesus and his kingdom will be the most satisfying, happy pursuit of your life. Or maybe to say the inverse, choosing to forgo that pursuit, to retain your own kingship, to allow no other to sit on the throne of your heart is tantamount to missing out on that which will truly satisfy. That's what I want to close us with. Brothers and sisters, as you well know, Monday is coming. You have many things vying for your attention. Responsibilities, relationships, calendar events, new experiences, new joys, maybe even fresh sorrow this week. So in the midst of it all, do not forget this king who calls men and women from every tribe and tongue, And who has called you? Do not forget this king whose rule is gentle, like a shepherd with his sheep. And do not forget this king whose purposes will not be thwarted. He is unlike any other. So let's make his honor our joy.
Let's engage in the happy pursuit of orienting our lives around King Jesus. At the beginning of our time, I highlighted the discrepancies in the song, We Three Kings, uh, but it's actually, it's a great song. And so what I want to do is I want to close just by reading verse two of it. It's short. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. No matter what we think of you, no matter how we act towards you, no matter what cultural winds blow or who has control, no matter what is happening in our lives, whether we are solid on a rock or being blown about, you are still king. Everything that we have seen is true of you. And we see that. And we desire to be shaped by that. We long to be made into your image. We, we long to reflect you. We long to respond in worship. So God, I just ask by your spirit, by grace, that you would provide all that we need for, for life and godliness. That you would give us grace as we wake up in the morning. That we would see you as king and that we would walk into our lives, however messy they might be, that we would walk into them knowing that someone is sitting on the throne and, and desire us to see that someone sitting on the throne of our hearts. Help us, Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus.